1: When Frederick Douglass was a child, it was illegal for him to learn the alphabet. He was born into slavery in eastern Maryland around 1818 and lived on a plantation until he was eight years old. He was then sent to the city of Baltimore to live with Hugh and Sophia Auld and be a playmate for their son Thomas.
0: Sophia, Tommy's mother, started teaching Tommy how to read, first with teaching the ABCs and then basic words. And Frederick heard Sophia read the King James Bible to Tommy. And there may have probably was a natural aptitude for language, for words. And Douglas was fascinated. And he asked Sophia to teach him to read. And because she had never been a slave mistress, she didn't realize how empowering that would be. And so she gave him his, taught him his ABCs, taught him the rudiments of uh, language and of reading. And then Hewald, who understood slavery and the power of literacy that would disrupt or subvert slavery, saw his wife, teaching and helping Douglas with his reading. And in front of Douglas, he told his wife, you can't do that. The easiest way to uh, unfit a slave for slavery is to teach him to read and write. And Douglas, hearing that, said to himself, if that's the case, I I will cut my eye teeth, do anything I can to master language, master reading and writing. And really from that moment... His life's mission was clarified, use words as a, the most potent weapon possible. Douglass continued
1: his lessons in secret, paying poor local boys bread to teach him to read. But he never forgot the first book, the King James Bible. That remained an influential book
0: throughout his life. He was more familiar with that than most, virtually any minister today. He could quote almost chapter and verse. And you see the way in which he borrows from the language of the King James Bible throughout his speeches and his writings. I'm John Stauffer, um, the Sumner R. and Marshall S. Cates Professor of English and of African American Studies at Harvard. Hugh Auld's fears came true. Douglas found his power through reading and
1: writing, He escaped slavery as a young man and went on to become one of the most famous and accomplished American writers of his day. He published three autobiographies, but he was more famous for his speeches. He gave many speeches along the Lyceum circuit in the U.S., which was an organization that put together various public education programs and brought famous orators to local communities.
0: And his life's mission was to Uh, destroy slavery and to try to achieve the ideals of the declaration that really was his life's mission uh, that uh, he as i said devoted himself to and his writing his photographs his speeches were all in that service welcome to
1: writ large a podcast about how books change the world i'm zachary davis in each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Stoffer to discuss Frederick Douglass's works. So tell us how um, his professional
0: writing and speaking career gets underway. It's important to understand that as a slave, Douglass was what I've called a, a comparatively privileged slave. One, he was born and raised in uh, Maryland, which is a uh, upper slave state. Uh, so it's f- much easier to escape to free soil from Maryland than most slaves were in the Deep South. And the possibility of uh, becoming free from the Deep South is far, far less. Uh, Douglas was also privileged in that he, uh, he spent a good portion of his time as a slave in Baltimore. Slaves living in cities had more
1: opportunities to escape which Douglas did in 1838 when he was 20 years old. By the time Douglass escaped, slavery had been abolished in all states north of Maryland. Many slaves found their way to freedom through the Underground Railroad, a secret network of routes and safe houses from the south to the free north and Canada. Douglas made his way north from Maryland, eventually settling in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He got a job as a preacher in a local African Methodist Episcopal church, the first church founded by black people in America. New Bedford was largely anti-slavery, and Douglass became active in the black abolitionist community and gave speeches, mostly to African-American audiences. He often referenced the King James Bible and was especially influenced by the books
0: of the prophets. The prophetic idea is important because Douglass was a prophet. He believed that he was acting out God's will uh, in his and God's vision for the idea of uh, equality and uh, and freedom, uh, and it's a main theme in the largest sense in the Old and New Testament. The idea of freedom, not just religious freedom, but uh, personal freedom. The Bible is probably the most, the single most influential text in his life, uh, and was uh, unembarrassed about emphasizing the prophetic nature of his oratory, of his journalism, of his autobiographies.
1: This idea of carrying out a prophetic mission was common with abolitionists. They believed that there was a law higher than the laws of society. In their eyes, they were doing God's work. So, Douglas reads the Hebrew prophets. Mm -hmm. They come down to wicked societies and call them to repentance. It sounds like he may have seen his calling as something similar through his public speeches.
0: Yes, that, that's a great point. He did, and, and I would call it a calling. He devoted his life uh, to converting people to what he perceived as this religious ideal of freedom and equality, equality of opportunity in particular. He was faithful to the democratic process.
1: In his speeches, Douglass shared his personal story of enslavement. At this point, he was speaking mostly to African Americans in the church. But one day, a white abolitionist named William C. Coffin came to see him talk. Coffin was impressed by Douglass' speech, and he invited Douglass to share his story at an upcoming convention for the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society in Nantucket. Douglass agreed and delivered his speech on August 11th, 1841.
0: And it's so powerful that William Lloyd Garrison, who is the head of the American Anti-Slavery Society, uh, hires Douglass to become a full-time paid lecturer. And it's a dream job because he loves speaking. He loves language. He moves from New Bedford to Lynn, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston, because it's at that point, in fact, his home was right next to the railroad station. He could see the railroad station. And as a lecturer, he's going to be, he travels all the time uh, to the north and the midwest. He couldn't go into the south. He would have been lynched and t- tries to abolitionize uh, northern audiences. Douglas understood that truth was a powerful tool for converting people into abolitionists. So he
1: shared his experiences with violent and sadistic slave owners. And he was extremely successful.
0: One example is he went to Buffalo, New York to abolitionize Buffalo, New York. And at that time, Buffalo was a a fast-growing town, mostly for business people. When he arrives at Buffalo, the venue that they had was an old dilapidated post office. When he arrives to give a speech, there's only about five people there. These five people weren't there to see Douglas speak.
1: They were cabbies who drove horse-drawn carriages and were just waiting in this rundown post
0: office for a job.
1: But that didn't discourage Douglas.
0: He gives this piece to five people and he gives his, a, a similar speech every day. And within 10 days, there's so many people wanting to hear him that there's not a venue large enough to hold him. So he speaks on the village green to what he estimates is a third of the population of the city. That's how how charismatic and magnetic and brilliant he was as a lecturer. And so, in fact, he's so good as a lecturer that increasingly some whites start to accuse him of being a fraud, saying you have such a mastery of language, you're such a brilliant wordsmith and order, there's no way you could not have had any formal education. There's no way you could have been a slave. For your first 20 years. Douglas realizes that if he's going to use the power of words to their full potential, he has to tell the whole truth. As a fugitive, he's legally a fugitive from justice. He doesn't say where he's from. He doesn't say who his master is because he doesn't want to get captured. Because of the accusations of fraud, he, he decides to throw caution to the wind and he writes his tell all and he says exactly where he's from and who his master was and... Uh, that book becomes a bestseller to such a degree to which the American Anti-Slavery Society sends him to England, Ireland, and Scotland, the British Isles, for two years to avoid recapture.
1: After working toward a world without slavery for so many years, Douglas had finally gotten there, or at least to one version of it. Slavery was officially abolished in Britain and the British colonies in
0: 1833.
1: Douglas could travel throughout the British Isles— and give speeches without fear of losing his freedom.
0: And he considered staying there and the American Anti-Slavery Society would have sent his family there and living there for the rest of his life. And the main reason that he returned to the United States is a sense of of obligation and duty to his fellow African-Americans. British sympathizers purchased his freedom while he was there. They contacted his owners, uh, Hugh and Thomas Alden, essentially negotiated a price. And so when he returns, he's free and he decides to move to Rochester, New York rather than Boston, because one of the, increasingly he becomes a political abolitionist, whereas the William Lloyd Garrison's American Anti-Slavery Society was what's known as non-resistance. In other words, they interpreted the Constitution as pro-slavery.
1: Douglass interpreted the Constitution as anti-slavery, and he spread that message in his speeches. After moving to Rochester, Douglass used some of the money he had earned in Britain and started an anti-slavery newspaper called The North Star. Although there were other abolitionist papers at the time, such as Garrison's The Liberator, Most of these were run by white abolitionists. Douglass wanted the African-Americans who had suffered the injustices of slavery to speak for themselves. So he made a newspaper that was written and edited by African-Americans. Meanwhile, Douglass was still going on the road, giving speeches everywhere he went. And while he's on the road, he discovers a new way to spread his message.
0: Most destinations where he gave speeches, photographers, because he's famous, wanted him to sit for them.
1: Photographers in this era would often take pictures of famous people for free. They gave the person they photographed a couple hundred pocket-sized copies of the photo to hand out. And in exchange, the photographer would keep the negative and sell copies of the photo to other clients.
0: And Americans then, like now, had photo albums. The difference is that American families... And individuals in their photo albums, there were family members and friends but also famous figures they didn't know that they identified with. So there are countless photo albums in which the family has a – or the individual has a portrait of Frederick Douglass, a photograph of Frederick Douglass even though they never met him but they wanted – they saw themselves identifying with him and so like it's why collecting t- baseball cards exactly. for exactly it's like it's the precursor to baseball cards douglas was in a sense the first baseball card figure
1: before long he became the most photographed american in
0: the 19th century so there are more separate photographs of douglas than of lincoln grant anyone else which reflects the degree to which the public face of America in the 19th century was the face of an African-American, which also highlights the degree to which American culture, American literature, American history is inseparable from African-American culture, African-American literature, African-American history Douglas also recognized, like his oratory, like his writing, the power of photography because photography told the truth. Even today, most Americans, when they see a photograph on the front page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, believe in its truth value, even though, every, even though everyone knows that you can airbrush out, you can distort and manipulate photographs like crazy. But there's, there's still this... Faithfulness in the truth of a photograph that doesn't exist in paintings or prints or other formats, and that was crucial for Douglas because it told the truth. And Douglas always presented himself as a, a citizen, as a uh, as a well dressed, articulate, good looking, even his enemies called him good looking uh, citizen of the United States. And in a sense, in his brilliance as a speaker and brilliance as a writer. And in his photograph, he sent a message that he was out-citizening white citizens at a time in which most white citizens didn't believe blacks should have citizenship. That was part of the power. The photos were a marketing
1: ploy. They helped to spread Douglas' image across the country. But they also reflected Douglas's deeper belief in the power of art.
0: One of the things that he mentioned when he wrote about photography is that photography, one, the truth value of photography was a powerful blow against racism and slavery. Two, Douglas used art to say, to highlight the degree, and he said this, all humans are fundamentally equal in the power of their imagination, Only humans can think outside the present and imagine a better future and reflect on the past. Only humans have the capacity to interact with a supernatural, with God uh, or any kind of religious deity. And that imaginative power, the ability to reflect on the past, to imagine a better future, was itself an engine of reform and possibly revolution. In fact, in one of his great speeches called "Pictures in Progress," he said, "Poets, prophets, and picture makers are all reformers, and that ability is the secret of their power. They see what ought to be in the reflection of what is, and seek to under uh, to undermine the contradiction." which is a, essentially a brilliant encapsulation of how art in the broadest sense inspires us to improve the world. It's extraordinary the way he seemed to combine uh,
1: philosophy or kind of rhetorical arguments with a really keen appreciation
0: for the power of the aesthetic. That's very right. That's exactly right. And in that sense, he, was, he resembled other leading intellectuals. Emerson Thoreau that was part of the era in which the division of the of knowledge and philosophy and art and literature really didn't exist so if you were an intellectual you really combined those realms at that time and Douglas did that brilliantly in fact when he escaped from slavery because he had had no formal education Part of the reason why he worked himself so hard is that he was trying to play catch-up. He escaped from slavery on September 3rd, 1838, and he didn't know when he was had been born. And so his birthday, he said his birthday was September 3rd, 1838. And uh, so he declared himself born on that day because he had lost the first 20 years, so he's playing catch-up. And then what what you see it in his writing and his speeches between the early 1840s by 1850 when he's speaking on the Lyceum lecture circuit, he's become an intellectual. He reads all of the kind of classic canonical texts of intellectual, absorbs them, digests them turns it into his own interpretation and can speak in ways that uh, dazzle his fellow intellectuals. In fact, when Emerson first heard Douglas speak, and Emerson was considered one of the preeminent intellectuals in the United States at the time, he was— um, profoundly inspired and impressed with Douglas. Uh, He'd be a little envious too. yeah. yeah, and envious is right, because <laughs> Douglas was Douglas could command a higher speaking feat than Emerson or any other order. That's how significant he was. Uh, and he was so significant that when he died, uh, a number of white newspapers, called him the most significant american in fact the chicago tribune after his death which is then and now a white newspaper this is a quote said no man white or black in the last 50 years has been as significant as frederick douglas to the united states that's an amazing statement
1: douglas's influence spread all the way to the white house in 1863 Douglas showed up unannounced at the White House and, to his surprise, was immediately invited in for a meeting with Lincoln. After this first meeting, Lincoln called on Douglas several more times throughout his presidency. Their last meeting was at Lincoln's second inaugural address. Of course, there is a photograph of Douglas at the event.
0: We see him in virtually front row at the second inaugural. And he's invited to the White House afterwards, and he enters the elegant um, green room and Lincoln uh, sees Douglas enter. He's surrounded by a crowd of whites and he raises his long arm and he says, here, he yells out, here comes my friend Frederick Douglass! I saw you in the crowd today. What did you think of my address? There is no man in these United States whose opinion I value more than yours. And Douglass responded, Mr. Lincoln, that was a sacred effort. And the, inaugur- the second inaugural is, in my view, the, the greatest inaugural address in American history. Uh, and we know that uh, Lincoln said that not only from Douglass's memory 20 or 30 years later, but there was a Boston woman who was right next to, wo- to Lincoln who quoted Lincoln saying that in her diary that same night. So it wasn't some hazy 20-year memory.
1: Lincoln and Douglas's friendship made a certain kind of sense.
0: They led strikingly parallel lives. Both of them grew up dirt poor. Lincoln Douglas, as a slave, who was prohibited from reading and writing, he learned how to read and write on the sly. He first started speaking by being a preacher to slaves on the plantation. Uh, Douglas had zero formal education. Lincoln grew up dirt poor. And had less than a year of formal education, and both of them, despite their lack of formal education, emerged as, in my view, two of the preeminent nonfiction writers and orators in American history. Lincoln, by far, is the nation's preeminent uh, presidential orator and rhetorician, and Douglas is, uh, is the, in my view, the greatest American nonfiction writer. So, one of the ways that Douglass had influence
1: was by shaping the views of the people who heard him speak Mm -hmm. and by the people who read his works. sounds like he directly influenced some Mm statecraft through his influence on on friendship with Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's spend a little time on the enduring influence of Douglass' thought and maybe you could take us through either some of the most important speeches that continue to be read and reflected upon Or some of the themes that you think, you know, both black intellectuals are still, you know, reinterpreting and reengaging with um, or in general, the, you know, the ideas maybe about representation, um, fulfilling democracy, the possibilities of full equality in the Constitution.
0: It's hard for me to pick his greatest speech, but certainly one of them, the one I most generally default to is what to the slave is the 4th of July.
1: July 4th, 1852, fell on the Sabbath, a day of religious observance
0: when people abstained from work. So Douglass gave the speech on July 5th. Douglas had a, a great sense, a brilliant sense of who his audience was. And he would change the tone and the tenor of his speeches depending on his audience. If he spoke to uh, African an African-American audience, it was much more militant and much more revolutionary. If he spoke to white women, he downplayed, the use of violence. If he spoke to more conservatives, he was really good at knowing his audience and giving them the message, but in a rhetoric and a tone that they could accept, that they could appreciate. And this audience was mostly whites, disproportionately large number of women, and what to the slave is the 4th of July. It's a, the best way to characterize it is a, an American Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is from the Jeremiah, from the Bible, And it's a song or story of lament that seeks to inspire the reader or the listener uh, to become an activist and recover the ideals and realize the ideals that had been lost uh, and to restore the society or the nation to its former possibility of greatness. So he begins his speech by focusing, because it's a 4th of July speech, by focusing on the founders, and rightly acknowledges the, the founders, mo- almost all the founders, were genuinely anti-slavery. So he looks at this moment of greatness and the declaration, which uh, invokes the essential premise of democracy is equality, uh, and equality and freedom, and And he he points out that Washington freed his slaves uh, and circulates the freedom of his slaves. He does it in his will, but circulates it. And he's the first American, so to speak. It's like a, a message for other statesmen to do the same thing. According to Douglas, Washington, who was the nation's first president,
1: was sending a very clear message. And he wasn't the only one. During and following the American Revolution when the U.S. colonies gained their independence from Britain, several northern states outlawed slavery. By 1805, slavery was illegal in all northern states, but it continued to exist in the South for another 60 years.
0: So the first part of the speech is, let's look back to the founders as, uh, as inspirations. By beginning the speech with the, with the founders, he puts his audience at ease. You are Americans, look at the founders, they are Americans. You, you should feel good and proud of this nation's founding it's all in the past and then in the present he just rips his audiences and american society apart and highlights this profound declension the church is complicit with slavery business every slavery is marinated throughout pro-slavery is marinated throughout society racism is marinated throughout society And that's most of the speech, is the degree to which slavery and pro-slavery thought marinates every aspect of American life. And then the second reversal is at the end, and it's looking to the future. And he says, I end where I began with hope. And the hope, there's this possibility of a radical transformation. He believed in a sharp break from the declension of uh, the growth of slavery. And the power of the speech is truly profound. In
1: 1865, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all American slaves. As a young child, Douglas had been told that teaching a slave to read was the surest way to unfit him for slavery. He had learned that reading and writing was his most powerful tool. Throughout his life, he used that tool to work toward and finally achieve his greatest mission destroying slavery. Rit Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of Lithub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.